All right, so check the time. I'm going to give a, uh, a 10 minute recap of Hebrew, so a little less than uh, a minute per chapter. I'm doing this for a few reasons, even though we've gone through it now. Uh, first, I assume this is uh, when the first audience, whoever that was, got this letter, sermon, whatever it is, they didn't just hear it once, but they read it and they had it read to them again and again and again. And as we've read it and as we've studied, we kind of discover that it's so thick with meaning, it's so rich, that it does kind of invite a second and a third and a fourth reading. So to try to honor that. Second, I want uh, to see now that we're at the end of it, how this is kind of a sustained sermon, a sustained idea that what you get at the beginning uh, follows through with chapter 2, 3, 4, all the way to chapter 13. You can kind of see the progression of what the author is doing here. And then related to that, the third reason I do a recap, even though I've done it several times, um, I am convinced that one of the best ways to, uh, to grow in our reading of Scripture is to listen closely, to follow the argument, uh, to pay attention to what the author is saying uh, in detail, because what that can do when we do it well is it allows us to hear something than our own preconceived notions uh, when you pay attention to, to his flow. Because what happens is we kind of have our preconceived theology or understanding of who God is or how the world works, and then we, we proof text, you know, we find a verse here, a verse there, and we kind of make it fit. What happens when we slow down and we really try to attend to an author's argument, uh, it kind of expands our thinking or sharpens our thinking in ways that, that just can't really do any other way than a really close reading of Scripture. So here is the 10-minute recap. As I'm doing this, um, you might also be thinking about those questions I left you with last week because we'll have some time for that. Uh, simple questions, although they're very important. What do we learn about God in Hebrews? And what do we learn about ourselves? Uh, those will be the, the two questions that I come to at the end of this uh, that I want to hear your reflections on. What from this study have we learned about who God is? And what have we learned about who we are to be in light of that and who we are? Okay, so chapter one, I've kind of picked a few verses from each chapter uh, to kind of summarize. Uh, chapter one, verses one through three. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days he's spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This author just hits the ground running. Uh, he doesn't spend time clearing his throat. He gets out of the gate and he's saying, this Jesus is fully God. He is creator, sustainer, the imprint, the glory of God. Whatever we do with, this, um, with the book of Hebrews, as he's talking about Jesus as king and high priest and son of man and superior in all these ways, we've also got to hold in mind, as he is the sacrifice, that he is also, from the beginning, first verses, God. You've got to take that seriously. He is God, and as the Hebrew author would say, he is superior to angels. Uh, the angels, uh, both uh, in tradition, gave the law, through God, they were the mediators. And so in one sense, he's saying, Jesus is bringing something superior to the law. In another sense, Jesus is superior to angels. Angels were little s, sons of God. This is a capital S, son of God. This is not just an angel that has come and died. This is God in flesh. We cannot, uh, we cannot lessen this at all. And chapter 1 prepares us for understanding of how he was exalted back to the hand of God. It was through the path of faithfulness, obedience and sacrificial love and that comes up again 
and again and again because Jesus is our pioneer. How does he exalt it? Faithfulness, obedience, sacrificial love. What do we do as we follow in this new covenant, our pioneer? We follow with faithfulness, obedience, and sacrificial love. Chapter 2 uh, gets the other side of this. If he is fully God, we get that he is fully human. Chapter or Verses 14 through 17 pick this up nicely. Therefore... The children share flesh and blood. He himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people." Chapter 1, he is fully God. Chapter 2, he is fully human. And part of him being fully human enables him to empathize with us. He's experienced our temptation. And somehow, uh, by taking on humanity, he is able to redeem our broken human condition. He frees us. He forgives us. He makes things as they are meant to be. Uh, and what we see then is Jesus becomes the true, truly human one. That's what chapter 2 picks up on. He shows us not only who God is, chapter 1, but he shows us who we are to be as the truly human one. The real son of man. We are all son of men. He is the real son of man. When we think about what it means to be made in the image of God, we look at the image of God in flesh. And what that means uh, is that we seek to be like him as we seek to become uh, image bearers. Chapter 3, we've already seen Jesus is superior uh, to angels. Now he is seen as superior to Moses. Moses is this great hero. Hebrews doesn't have anything bad to say about Moses. He just wants to make sure you understand Moses is a far and distant second compared to Jesus. Moses was faithful in the house of Israel uh, like a servant in that house. And the parallel is Jesus is so much more faithful, not as a servant, but as a son in the house of God. And then he kind of says, look, he's not just a son. He's the builder of the house. If you want to talk about his superiority to Moses, Moses helped bring a good covenant. Jesus brings a superior covenant. Uh, and then what he's going to then do is, is continue this parallel. You have Jesus and Moses on one parallel, or I should say Moses and Jesus, and then Israel and the church. What we learn about uh, by looking at Moses, about Jesus' superiority, we look at Israel and learn something about what the church, this new house of God, is supposed to look like. And one of the things chapter 3 uh, highlights is just as that, uh, the house of Israel was called to be faithful to covenant, so the house of the church, God's new house, is to be faithful to this new covenant. And he's going to explain what this new covenant is soon, uh, but the parallel that he's drawing is Israel is expected to be faithful, the church is expected to be faithful. Because we're getting to this idea of the conditional nature of the covenant, uh, that uh, just as Israel, because of their callousness of sin, some of them did not enter into the promised land of rest, so it is possible that those of us in this new covenant might not enter into rest if we are not faithful to covenant. Not perfect, that's not what we're called to, uh, but there is an expectation of faithfulness to this covenant. So verse 15, if I'm picking a verse or two to capture this, of chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Chapter 4, we've seen chapter 3, Jesus is superior to Moses. Uh, if uh, we're thinking about Jesus' superiority to Moses, Moses' successor is Joshua. So it's not surprising that now Jesus is seen as superior to Moses' successor, Joshua. Joshua helped lead them into the promised land, to that rest. 
Uh, and what Jesus does is brings us to a superior rest, a superior promised land. He has pioneered a way into the very rest in the presence of God, a true rest from temptation and sin and struggle. Um, and as we're paying attention to Israel, as we don't want to be those uh, who aren't able to enter into the rest, as we try to be those who are not caught up or, um, or um, infected by the callousness of sin, uh, we are, uh, the strategy then is to lay ourselves bare to the word of God. And so you have this language of the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, splitting soul and spirit. It's basically a way of saying uh, it, it gets into the heart of things. And this is part of what I'm hoping we're getting from this class is as we, as we attend closely to the word of God, which the word can mean Jesus, but it can also mean scripture, uh, we are hopefully laying our hearts bare allowing it to, to um, reveal what we love and maybe what we shouldn't love and maybe what we should love uh, because we are seeking to be faithful to covenants. Uh, and right next to this, this is something that Hebrews does throughout that I've really been struck with. You've got this harsh teaching, the conditional nature of the covenant, uh, laying your hearts bare in this kind of um, surgical procedure. But then that's followed up, this kind of harsh a scary teaching is followed up by our merciful high priests. So the, the verses I might capture in this is 15, 14 through 16. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested, as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach, I love this language, the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. It's just, it's beautiful. Chapter 5, um, Jesus has been superior to Moses and Joshua. We're thinking about the law and the priesthood, and what we see is Jesus is the superior high priest. This is captured nicely in verses 8 through 10. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So, we have not only one superior to Moses and to Joshua and to the angels, but we have this great high priest. And this idea is going to get picked back up in chapter 7, but he's preparing for us. But first he says, you need to get past the basics. And what he's saying is not you need to get past some little Sunday school lessons, but you need to get past the basics of Christian faith if you're wanting to build something. And then he says basics are things like repentance. This is chapter 6. Basics are things like repentance, faith, baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection, and judgment. And, and I think what he's saying is, is this is some of the essential stuff. You can't progress in this journey if you haven't made at least this move. Repentance. Repentance, we don't need to think of as just feeling sorry. We should think of repentance as proper orientation. And so if we're to go on a journey, how can we even go the right direction if we haven't oriented ourselves appropriately? This is why he's saying you've got to get the basics before you move on. Because where are you going to go if you're not oriented in the right directions? You've got to get this right. Uh, so repentance, faith, you've got to understand what faith is about. Baptism, baptism means so many things, but I think maybe one of the things we get here is a death to an old way, um, birth to a new way, and an entrance into covenant. Baptism is rich, uh, not to mention the forgiveness of sins, which th- uh, kind of flows throughout Hebrews. Uh, laying on of hands, I think, represents the Spirit. Resurrection, if you don't believe in resurrection, then why bother going on this journey? 
That's Paul's idea. That's Hebrew's idea. Uh, without the resurrection, this journey doesn't make sense. The resurrection is our hope. Why would we suffer? Why would we uh, do what we do without the hope of the resurrection? Josh did a good sermon a while back about um, Scripture isn't like a house of cards, but when it comes to resurrection, this is a house of cards kind of thing. You pull out resurrection, it all falls. This whole Jesus thing, uh, this whole path, right? We need to go back to Judaism if, if uh, resurrection didn't happen. This is a game changer, uh, and we've got to take that seriously. So this is why he says this is basic. You get the resurrection, it kind of gives you uh, a goal in this oriented life. Uh, so 19 and 20 to capture chapter 6. We have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain, where Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, it's just this beautiful language about where our hope lies, what we're anchored to, and then it prepares us for chapter 7 with Jesus, a priest like Melchizedek. What I said in chapter 7 uh, when I taught this, uh, maybe a, a way of thinking about this, is what is true literarily of Melchizedek is true literally of Jesus. Literarily, Melchizedek, Mel- Melech, Zedek, his name literarily means king of righteousness. That is true literally of Jesus. He is king of righteousness, the king who is going to set things right, the king who is going to bring justice. What is true literarily of uh, Melchizedek as king of Shalom, of Salem, is he is literarily king of peace. Literally, this is true of Jesus. He is the king of Shalom, the one bringing that peace, that Shalom that the Jews have longed for. What is true literarily of Melchizedek, he had no birth or death. Literarily, it's like Melchizedek always has been and always will be, is literally true of Jesus. Going back to chapter 1, he is God in the flesh. And this is going to be the one who is also our high priest and our sacrifice. This is just incredible. And so verses 23 and 24 captures this sense of how Jesus is like the king and high priest together like Melchizedek was, uh, but truly so in what we truly needed. So verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. What was literally true about Melchizedek? Literally true. Jesus continues forever. Consequently, he is able to say for all time those who approach God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is our king and high priest. The king uh, and the high priest were... Um, were kind of disconnected figures in Israel's history. It was like a system of checks and balances almost. But there was this time that Psalm 110 talks about, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It was like already in Israel's scriptures, they were looking for a time when these two might be brought together, where you wouldn't have to have the system of checks and balances because there might be a good and faithful high priest that one could trust uh, who could uh, be what God was hoping for. And this is who we get in Jesus. Chapter 8 then prepares us for what's to come. Uh, in two ways. Uh, it talks about how the old covenant, the old sanctuary, was like a sketch or a shadow. And that idea is going to follow throughout uh, the rest of this. It was good. It's not a bad thing. It's good, but it's just a sketch and a shadow. And the true thing is here. And so we look at the old as kind of foreshadowing the new and the greater. And where he really uh, hones in on in chapter 8 uh, is this, um, this prophecy uh, in Jeremiah 31. So this is Hebrews 8. Uh, 8 through 12. 
The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they, they didn't continue in my covenant, and so I had no concern for them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. So here is what Hebrews is saying. This is what Jesus has accomplished. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What this new covenant has accomplished um, is a greater intimacy with God. An increased ability to be faithful to covenant. It's like the law is written on hearts and minds. And a more complete forgiveness. Uh, the kind of forgiveness that the old law was only a shadow and a sketch of. Old law was good. It allowed some closeness with God, some sense of forgiveness, some uh, ability to obey. The new covenant, so much more so. And we're looking forward to the full completion of this when the Son returns. But there is already this move in the new covenant, which then gets us to chapter 9. As he's talking about this uh, new covenant and this sketch of the old, uh, let's turn to verses 23 through 26. It was necessary for the sketches of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves need better sacrifices than these. So the old way, the old covenant, the old kind of cult system with sacrifice of animals, that was necessary. It was good, but that was necessary for the sketch. For the real thing, for the real temple, for the real presence of God, something more was needed. Verse 24, For Christ didn't enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ enters into a better temple. It is not the sketch, it's the real thing. And he doesn't offer the sketch of the sacrifice, but the real sacrifice. And because he offers the real sacrifice and the real presence of God, he doesn't have to do it over and over and over again. He did it once for all, and it offers complete um, reconciliation and forgiveness. Man, what a high priest, what a son of God, what a human being he was. Chapter 10. We can pick up in verse 18 as he's dealing some with covenant, 18 through around 24. Or excuse me, 19 through 24. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. Have you picked up that Jesus is not only the high priest, but the sacrifice? By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Let me start over. I want you to to hear in this. The way Jesus is the center of everything. I, I meant to draw your attention to this. Notice that we enter this covenant through Jesus, by Jesus, and because of Jesus. Through, by, because. Therefore, my friends, because we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and because we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Why? By his blood, by the new covenant he opened, through his flesh, because he is the high priest. And because of this, covenant is a two-sided thing. God covenants with us, and he does all the hard work here. It is most of the hard work. Comes human, dies on our behalf. But there is expectation of, um, of our side of the covenant. And what does our side of the covenant look like? Verse 23. 
Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised himself is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. He has kept his side of the covenant. Our side is love and good deeds. That's the kind of summary of it. Not this wishy-washy kind of love, good feelings. It's the kind of love that shows itself in sacrifice. That's who our pioneer was. That's who we are called to be. So, those who enter in this covenant live by faith. So chapter 11 and 12 are going to get us thinking about what it means to live by faith. So that famous verse, chapter 11, verse 1, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. This idea of faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, isn't just this mental thing, but you are so assured of what you hope for, and we're thinking of hope as we've seen in these first ten chapters, this hope of resurrection, this hope of restoration, this hope of forgiveness, this hope of rest, this hope of entering into His presence. When you hold on to that hope, faith means that you live your life oriented toward that. Faith changes everything. So then this um, parallel shows up again. This old covenant, this old hope uh, that was made with Abraham, this old covenant promise of land and rest and blessing, because of that hope, they held on to that hope and they lived their life. You saw their actions. They might leave their homeland. They might uh, sacrifice. They might risk. This is what happens when they held on to the hope of the old covenant. How much more so when we hold on to the hope of the new covenant will our lives be marked by obedience and faithfulness and sacrifice? Which is exactly where he gets in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame. As we hold on to that hope, we lay aside sin, we disregard shame, and we seek to be faithful and follow our pioneer. All of which then prepares us for the end in chapter 13 as we're seeing how this... And I think chapter 13 verse 1 should actually start in verse 28 of chapter 12. So chapter 12, 28 should, in my opinion, be chapter 13 verse 1. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken... Right? This is another way, I think, of saying, therefore, since we are holding on to this kind of hope, this kingdom of shalom and righteousness, uh, that resurrection attests to, because this is our hope of new covenant, what follows then, let us hold on to grace. And then chapter 13, verse 1, literally, let mutual love continue. Don't neglect hospitality. Remember those in prison. Let marriage be held in honor. Keep your lives free from the love of money. These kind of ethics, these uh, imperatives that he gives follow very much because our lives are reoriented around this new hope. You hold on to this new hope, it means it's going to change the way you treat others. Let mutual love continue. Why? Because of how we've been loved. Because we know what love does to us. Why might we not neglect to show hospitality to strangers? Because look at the hospitality shown to us as we can enter into the house of God. Why might we remember those who are in prison? Because our God became flesh and died for us. How could we not remember those who are suffering? Why might we hold marriage uh, covenant in high regard? Well, obviously because of the covenant that God has shown with us as part of it. Our marriage covenant becomes like a mirror, a sketch maybe, of the covenant that God makes with us. And so we are covenant people, and we honor that covenant the way God honors His covenant with us. Why might we keep our lives free from money? Because we love something else, and because God didn't grasp on uh, to His 
uh, power and his things, you might say, but instead he open-handedly gave them away for our sake. Why would we not do the same uh, understanding who God is, who Jesus is, and what he's accomplished? All right, so hopefully I kept that 10, 15 minutes. (laughs) It's hard to get through that. All right, so... Uh, maybe five minutes each on these, so keep it uh, concise. What have you learned about who God is in Hebrews that maybe you didn't come in already uh, knowing? Maybe it sharpened some ideas or clarified some ideas. What do you learn about who God is from Hebrews? Well, I think sometimes people say this is a one-volume commentary on the entire Old Testament. It does bring back to that comment, Randall, you asked one day, what do you think about God in the Old Testament? It, it really was a God of grace from the beginning. Yeah. And so when he says in, thir- in uh, chapter 13, your strength comes from God's grace, not through a system of laws, mm-hmm. sacrifices, or rules, but your strength. The only thing you, the only thing you can rely on is God's grace. Yeah. And that carries you as you try and struggle to be this Christian, this follower, this person does good things on his behalf it's not to earn anything because again we can't brag on anything yeah. except God's grace good. so you see the grace of God showing up in Hebrews nice a few more don't be scared yeah I think if I take Hebrews 1 I think he showed himself over and over and over again he showed himself to the angels he showed himself through Moses, he showed, and, and the author says, he's really showing you Jesus, I mean, it's really, yeah. um, he's revealed himself in a variety of ways, and Jesus is the, the revelation. Good. That's a couple more. Mm-hmm. It, it shows me that this was supposed to be all along, that Christ coming is not like a, oops, we need a plan B. Mm-hmm. This was the way it's supposed to be from the very beginning. It makes a continuity to the whole Bible from to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, completely agree. One or two more. I'll just say one thing is don't minimize yourself and the impact you can have or the importance of what you do. Okay. Yeah, you get a lot of that in chapter 11, especially who God works through powerful ways. Randall, would you add anything about who you see as God, who God is in Hebrews? I just think, I think the Old Testament, God got a bad rap mm-hmm. a lot of times. And mm-hmm. I think he really revealed himself. But it, just like you said, it, it's a continuum. And he's finally revealed himself as Jesus. And that's somebody that will, will make us all draw near. You don't go yeah. back, you draw near. Um, the thing that struck me about who God is, as I tried to, to, you know, reflect on my own question, to be fair, was God is both more merciful and holier uh, than I tend to think of him. It's really hard to hold his mercy, right, this, this merciful, gracious God that Hilton points out. And then you have these, these teachings like it's a scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is, he is merciful and he is just. He is gracious and he is holy. And it's so hard to make sense of how he can be so merciful and so holy that I think my way of dealing with it is try to, to, to lessen each. A little less merciful, a little less holy, that's how I can, but it won't 
let me do that. All right? He is way more merciful than I can understand, and he is way holier than I can understand. Uh, and so it, it just kind of brings this awe and this humility um, and this thank you for Jesus because, man, where would we be without him? Without that, that very clear demonstration of his mercy, but also a demonstration of the holiness of God because if the Son of God needed to die, then that speaks about the nature of the holiness of God. The way we enter into God's presence is through the death of his Son. What does that tell us about both the mercy and the holiness of God? All right, second question, what do we learn about ourselves? Uh, maybe who we are in God's eyes or who we are called to be. Uh-huh. When I think about my, myself and us, historically where we are, I, uh, I thought it would be neat to, to sometimes live in a time of the patriarchs and God spoke directly to you, but of the millions of people on earth at the time, he spoke to a handful. Mm-hmm. Likely, I would have been, but maybe the prophets of the tens of millions of people on earth. God spoke through a few prophets, so I told man it would have been neat to live in Jesus' time. Mm-hmm. But as a Gentile, I, I wouldn't have, you know, he, well, he spent a lot of time with 12 people. Mm-hmm. He knew hundreds of people, of the maybe 100 million people on earth, but he did. But, but I do live in a time when. Okay, now the Holy Spirit is available to be indwelled in everyone. Mm-hmm. I don't live in a time of sketches or shadows. I don't live in a time when uh, the high priests were uh, either didn't know how to raise their sons right or were corrupted by Rome. I live in a time when my high priest is the King of Peace, the King of Righteousness. So um, maybe I'm living in the best possible time available from a yeah. Spiritual standpoint, which kind of brings me around to okay, how do I respond to that? What's my response to that? What what accountability do I have that maybe uh, responsibilities do I have to the Gentile living three thousand years ago or a thousand years ago? <coughs> I think maybe I have maybe more of a responsibility to respond to, wow. to God. Though. Yeah. Wow. Very well said. Yeah, I think we take that for granted so much. That's I can't add to that. Who else? A few more? I teach freshmen so I can handle some awkward silence. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Hebrews won't let you get away from action. And yeah, forgiveness runs hand in hand with that. If we understand how we've been forgiven, we can't withhold forgiveness. A few more? What do we learn about who we're called to be? quiet group today. You got anything, Randall? Well, I, I, all week I've just I've thought about uh, this, you know, what what have I gotten out of this, this time uh, going through Hebrews? And I, I think 
at the forefront is rest. I think about the meat and uh, milk scenario, and I think about my life and how for the for the um, earliest part of my life I spent in apologetics on all those milk things, and how he's calling us to really understand who Jesus is and to go back and and I mean dig and figure out who Jesus is and what he did and why, and then and only then can you come to that rest deal. I, for, so for me, I think this whole deal has been uh, rest. Hmm. Coming to rest. Because I truly understand who Jesus is and I truly understand that it's not about me. My salvation has nothing to do with it. It was done by him. And my deal is to know enough about Jesus to have faith that he can take me across. Hmm. He can do it. Nice. Thank you. One thing this week is uh, I read chapter 13 13 and 14 times uh-huh. this week. It's the benediction prayer in verses 20 Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as, a, as somebody who serves as a shepherd of a congregation you really do, you really do want to say this prayer uh, for people that you care about. I have that marked as the God equipped mm-hmm. with everything that you need to do his good to do his will. And may he produce in you or us through the power of Jesus every good thing that he wants you to do. And I think that's a prayer that we could pray every day of our life, not only for ourselves, but for everybody we care about. Yeah. That somehow God will produce in us the ability to do what he wants us to do. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's absolutely amazing that we have access to God through Jesus Christ, our high priest. God is the creator of this great universe. How can we imagine and how can we appreciate the fact that we have access to God through Jesus Christ that he gives us our sins? I think it's something that we need to keep in mind how wonderful it is that we have this access. Yeah. Yeah, how do, we, how do we go from that being something that we just take for granted? Because that's, that seems to what he's part of what the Hebrew author is stirring up. Don't take this for granted. This is serious stuff. This should change you on a daily kind of basis. And it's so commonplace that it's, it becomes like, hmm, it, it, it loses its motivation. We need to think thoughtfully about the kind of spiritual practices and disciplines that might lead us to... Uh, let that continue to, to shape us, to be that hope that we hold on to. All right, we got three more minutes. Um, y'all are a quiet group, so anyone got ideas about something that's uh, to kind of follow what has been said, things that have been particularly meaningful to you in this study of Hebrews? No? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Luke Timothy Johnson says uh, <laughs> Apollos. I, that's as good a guess as, as anyone. Um, someone who knows Paul's circle of influence. Other than that, I don't know. I don't know why the author wouldn't put his name on here. But yeah, we don't know. I saw another hand. Yeah? You're saying some of those most meaningful, and I think me chapter 10 verse 39 
mm-hmm. it sets up chapter 11. Uh, in, in one respect, the, the chapter headings are do us a disservice because you lose continuity of thought and you have a tendency mm-hmm. to start at chapter headings and forget what was said Absolutely. right before, but that verse, but we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but among those who have faith and so are saved. That communal, bringing together the community to say this is who we are as a people, look back and see where you came from, and so you know more about who you are, and then you have courage and faith to move forward into the hope. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just that piece of it just has been stuck with me for several weeks now. Great. Well, um, I like that Hilton Hilton stole my thunder a little bit. Not that I have much thunder, but that, that passage I actually have marked as the closing blessing that I was going to pray over you, so it's worth hearing again. Now may the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good, so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.